I'll tell you what, that is the best the choir has sung all year, and I am guarantee you, you got a whole year to look forward for it to even get better. Well, before we get started, Mike said he'd help me out on a little ditty we put together for today's sermon. Somebody asked me if I was going to bring a cardigan or change shoes. Not going to do that, but I thought we could at least open with the title song for our sermon. So thank you, Mike, for putting us all in the mood of Won't You Be My Neighbor? Well, almost all of us, uh, thank you, Mike, appreciate that. So if you have any requests, you just bring them to Mike and he'll play them whenever you ask him to. But um, all of us know that song, uh, and it's funny because we've just grown up with it. Maybe we don't know every word, but we at least know the important words to it. Uh, There's some funny stories from Fred Rogers' life where people would just spontaneously start singing that song when they saw him. Uh, like um, uh, there's a time where he and a co-worker were going to a meeting in New York City, get on a subway car because there's not a taxi available. And um, when they get on, people recognize them. Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers, it's a beautiful day in the night. Na- and the whole subway train car sang, won't you be my neighbor, as they you know, plowed under the streets of New York City. Um, but I suppose there's no one who's ever had more neighbors than Mr. Rogers. Because there have been just generations and generations of people who've grown up with him asking if he could be their neighbor. I think the baton has been passed to Daniel Strike Tiger. If you have preschoolers, you'll know that. Um, And he is now the one asking to be the neighbor. But at the um, end of his song, he almost begs us to be his neighbor. Won't you be? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? And if you're out there and you thought, nobody wants to be my neighbor. Nobody will live next to me. I'm not saying I would. But Mr. Rogers would. And so you can kind of carry that with you today. Just kidding. Maybe I'll move in next to you someday. But a few months ago, I picked up a uh, book called The Art of Neighboring. And it's the inspiration for the, uh, Mr. Rogers is not the inspiration for the message today. This book is. And um, the inspiration for the book came from a meeting of some pastors in a town in uh, Denver area where they got together and they said, what can we do as a church, as churches in our community to just show our community we love them, to show support, to kind of be a solution to some problems. And so they were praying about that and thinking about that. And at one point they brought the mayor in for a discussion. And they said, what's going on in our city? What are the biggest needs our city faces that maybe we as churches could help solve? We could be a part of the solution. And so the mayor named a lot of issues that probably any mayor of any town across our country could name that they face with regards to at-risk children, dilapidated housing, Kids that go hungry, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, the elderly who have no one to check in on them, things like that, that just kind of a, some heavy stuff. And in fact, we like to uh, criticize our leaders uh, for maybe things that we see that are lacking, but we ought to be praying for them because that's the thing they wake up with every day. With, that's, that's their charge is to care for these kinds of issues in our own town and towns across the country. But the mayor mentioned what um, typically happens in the community whenever somebody notices a problem. As they say, man, that's a problem. It starts to rise up, and they go to the town leaders, and they say, you know, you ought to do something about this. Have you thought about starting a program or an initiative, you know, to kind of fix this problem? And this mayor, he actually believed that um, the solutions um, for society's social issues aren't always found in the government. Um, Maybe some of you agree with that, but uh, he believed that relationships are much more important or much more powerful or much more impactful than programs, government programs. 
And the solution that the mayor suggested at that meeting is what kind of launched an initiative in their own town and then also um, uh, kind of inspired this book and kind of has traveled across the, the country. And this is what he said. I'll read to you. The majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. The idea is that when neighbors are in relationship with one another, the elderly shut-in gets cared for by the person next door, the at-risk kid gets mentored by a dad who lives on the block, and so on. So the mayor's admonition to these pastors was, why don't you go back to your churches and tell the people, would you just love your neighbor? Now that's not new, is it? I think we've heard that one before somewhere. Late into Jesus' ministry, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they would all try to trap him. They'd ask him questions to try to corner him, to pigeonhole him. So if they got him, then they could uh, you know, use it against him to uh, have him arrested or have him punished or to get rid of him or whatever it might be. And so Matthew describes in chapter 22, one of these occasions that this happens, where um, the Pharisees questioned him and he answered in a way that kind of shut him up. And then the Sadducees asked a question, and uh, Jesus responded in a way that just kind of, you know, got him quiet. And so there was another guy who said, well, I mean, I got a question too. And so the Pharisees came up with another one to ask a question. And he decides to go um, and uh, test him again. And so I'm going to read to you from Matthew 22 when this happens, verse 35. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. An interesting passage in Scripture, and in it Jesus quotes what's kind of a treasured piece of Scripture from the Old Testament, from the Torah, from Deuteronomy 6, 4, Five, they call it the Shema, where it says, Hear, O Israel, listen, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. So that's what he quotes from, and the people expected that. Any good rabbi, if you asked him, what's the greatest thing, the most important thing, would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And so Jesus, that's the answer he gave them. They're kind of like, good answer, good answer. The survey says, ding, ding, ding. It's exactly what they wanted to hear. You know, they're like, he's a good rabbi. And so that's kind of where he goes with that. Now, the expert only asks for the greatest command. Did you notice that? What's the greatest command? But Jesus, either being an overachiever, going for a little extra credit, whatever it might be, or trying to illustrate a point here, he takes a little liberty at this point, and he offers an additional commandment. And so we begin, Jesus says, with the first and the greatest commandment, love God. And then Jesus says we have this second commandment that's like the first and the greatest. And these two, Jesus says, are the two commandments on which everything else in the Scripture depends on. I want you to kind of catch the gravity of that statement. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. In other words, the crux of everything the Jewish people had heard taught to them by the prophets, by their leaders in the Scriptures, everything could have been summed up in this way with these two commands, love God and love your neighbor. Because the heart of God's plan is for mankind to love. And so we are to love God with everything we've got. We could spend a series of sermons there, but as you probably guessed, I want to focus on that second part where it says love your neighbor as yourself. 
Well, why is love for people so important? Why is it so important? Why can't we just love God? Why do we have to love people? You might ask yourself that sometimes. But why do we have to love people too? You know, there's an, uh, an interesting passage in, Mass- uh, in Matthew, just a few chapters previous to this, where Jesus simply says, doing for others what you would have them do unto you, he says that right there is the heart of the law and the prophets. He says the golden, the golden rule, do unto others and have you do unto you, that that is the heart of the law and prophets. He kind of leaves out that part about loving God. I'm not saying he's leaving it out because it's not important, because it is. But I think there's a point in this that we can, or a point we can take from this, is that, you know, when we love God, um, now we, we see it in visible ways here, in the way that we worship God. But for the most part, it's a private thing. It's an internal thing. It's a passion thing. You can say you love God, but do you really love God? Only maybe you and God know. But when all of a sudden we start loving people, our love for God becomes a whole lot more visible. All of a sudden you can see our love for God in the way that we love people. And that fulfills what the law and the prophets are all about. So I think that we're really comfortable with this. You know that Jesus says two commandments, love God, love your neighbor. You're like, okay, I can deal with that a whole lot more than I can all these rules, all these regulations, the do this, the don't do that. But how in the world am I going to deal with you know, those? But these two alone, I can handle love God and love my neighbor. Well, there was this up-and-coming religious leader, attorney, we'll say, because he was good at debate in the scriptures, that posed this exact question to Jesus. Luke 10 tells us about it. Uh, when all of a sudden there's this religious leader um, who's asked, um, who goes to Jesus and asks, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Well, he was an expert in the law, so Jesus says, well, you know, what does the law say? And so I'm going to read to you. Where it says, so he answered, verse 27 of Luke 10, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Ding, ding, ding. Survey says you got it right. You know, he answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this, and you will live. I just want to point out there that God didn't say, or Jesus didn't say, answer correctly, and you will live. What's the operative word there? Do this, and you will live. Now, I need, don't get me wrong here. Jesus is not saying... That if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you'll inherit eternal life. We cannot work our way towards God. On your best day, at loving your neighbors greater than you ever have before, you are still too sinful. You are sinful where you cannot enter into God's presence. We desperately need to be able to transfer our sin to Jesus and let him transfer his righteousness onto us if we're going to approach God. But what I think he is saying is if you're following God, then you should be doing this. You should be loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's a pretty important part of the sermon because that means it's possible for you to give the right answer but live the wrong life. Because the expert of the law says, well, this is what I'm doing to inherit eternal life. Love God, love my neighbor. Jesus says, you're right. Now do it and you'll live. So it's very important that we kind of apply that because I think we get confused about that sometimes in the churches. We think, oh, the very spiritual people are the ones who know the most about the Bible. You know, they can answer all the right questions. But I think what's very important is that we actually apply what's in here. And we are doing the love God. And we are doing the love our neighbor. And then as the Lord would have it, Jesus makes this point very clearly because this expert in the law decides, I'm going to justify myself here and say, well, I'm going to inherit eternal life. He says, because I'm loving God and I'm loving neighbor. But in order to kind of justify himself, he says, okay, well, I can do that as long as I get to define who my neighbor is. So Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, for this guy, when you say you ought to love your neighbor, 
It's an ought of obligation. In other words, who am I obligated to love? Okay, Jesus, let's talk about this. I can love God and I can love my neighbor, but who are the people that I'm really obligated to love? Who are the ones that I have to do this for? So just tell me real quick, who is my neighbor? And the problem here is that living in the kingdom of God is sometimes like living your life upside down. There's a great great quote from John Ortberg where he says, For Jesus, love is not just an obligation. It's your greatest opportunity. Did you catch that? Love is not just an obligation. It's your greatest opportunity. You know, if we're not careful, we tend to say, um, you know, what, you know, what are the things that I have to do? Or what are the things I feel convicted about that I should do or should say or shouldn't do or shouldn't say? And we kind of live according to this whole legalistic attitude. But never forget that love is not just an obligation. It's your greatest opportunity. If you want to live, you love people. If you want to find life, it's in loving people. It's your greatest opportunity. We could leave on that note, but i got about an hour's worth more material. I'm going to keep on going, so get comfortable. But for his listeners... The general answer that they would say, okay, so who is my neighbor? They would say, well, it's some other devout Israelite, somebody that's kind of like us, somebody that's living according to the, uh, the Torah. They're keeping the law. I mean, maybe it's somebody who's you know, sliding a little bit in some areas, but it's definitely not a Gentile, definitely not an enemy of God or an enemy of our, uh, God's people. That's kind of how they would answer it. So um, Jesus decides to uh, challenge the status quo, as he does so often, and he goes on with a story because he's a great storyteller. Verse 30 says, Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. Now, we would expect in a a story that Jesus is telling to illustrate who is my neighbor, that there would be somebody who is going to give neighborly love, and then there would be the appropriate person that you're supposed to give that love to, right? So it seems like Jesus starts right off the bat with the person who's in need of the neighborly love. It's this guy who's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and ends up beaten, left for dead. Now what else do we know about this guy that's supposedly going to be the the person that we should love, the neighbor here? Do we know if he's a good guy? Do we know if he's a good person, that he keeps the law? No, we don't know that. Do we know if he is a devout Israelite? Nope, we don't know that. All we know is he is a man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho and got hurt. And needs help. That's all we know about him. So it seems like we can tell Jesus is not really interested in answering the question of what kind of person am I obligated to love? What I believe that Jesus is going to do here is he's describing what kind of person must you be in order to give love? What kind of person must you be in order to be able to give the kind of neighborly love that he expects? It's a totally different question, but... If love is your greatest opportunity, it's the better question. So he tells us in his story here, a priest happened to be going down the road. And we would all say, well, that's good news. This is a guy who knows the Old Testament, he knows the law, he knows he's supposed to love his neighbor. Except this priest sees the guy in need, crosses over and keeps on going. And then behind him, a Levite comes. A Levite's not quite a priest, but you know, it's kind of like the pastor came and then one of the deacons showed up. And you're like, okay, we didn't get the pastor, we got a deacon. And the deacon's walking down this road and he sees the guy who's in need. He crosses and keeps going, and he doesn't help. And then Jesus tells us about a third guy, a Samaritan. But a Samaritan on his journey, and they would probably laugh because <laughs> it's like the punchline. Okay, this is going to be a good joke here he's telling. A Samaritan, you know. 
It's kind of like throwing in kind of a, just a good joke in the middle of the story. Because they didn't really think of the Samaritans in a very high fashion. You know, they, they, they were kind of the outcasts of society, the half-breeds, the people they didn't associate with. They lived up there. We lived down here. You know, the other side of the tracks. Or they don't get to worship in our church. You know, it's, they, they, they were outcasts because they didn't have that pure blood that the, the Hebrews, you know, just was so important to them. And so here's this Samaritan who's coming along. And um, the Samaritan saw the man, and the scripture said, or Jesus says, he had compassion. Now, to have compassion, I think that's kind of like he looked at this guy and he said, man. He didn't just say, man, what happened to that guy? We better start a program. He said, man, what would happen if I were in that situation? What would I want to happen to me? Who would help me? What if I walk on by? Who's going to help this guy? And so out of asking those questions, he answers it. By having compassion. Now the Levite and the, uh, and the priest apparently never answered the question because they never really asked it. They just kept right on going. It was, you know, for them, you know, whatever it might be, they, they, um, we like to say they were in a hurry. But I think the prognosis is they didn't have compassion. There were people active in their church. They were religious without compassion. But the Samaritan went way out of his way and just inconvenienced himself in dramatic ways to take care of this guy's needs. And if he couldn't take care of it, He was going to make sure that there was an opportunity for somebody else to kind of care for their needs. That's what the Samaritan man did for this man that was left dead. Now, that's an interesting thing because we say love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what does that mean? I think what it means is you almost just have to take your skin off, wrap it around the person over here, and you say, what would I want if I were in that situation? And so that's what the Samaritan did. He just kind of wrapped his skin around and said, what would I want in this situation? And he responded the way that he would want to happen. So Jesus concludes with the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now that's a totally different question than was posed at the beginning. At the beginning, the guy said, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, well, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? The New American Commentary points out that this is not even close to the same question that was asked. But it's almost as if Jesus heard a bad question and twisted it with the story and turned it into a more appropriate question. See, it's not who are we obligated to love. The question is, what kind of person does it take to show neighborly love? And so the guy answers, the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. There's that word do again. Now, there's a very easy application to this passage of Scripture. You know, Jesus wants us to help those who are obviously in need. And I'm sure that this story has kind of launched unbelievable movement uh, in, our, in history to kind of care for those in need. Probably some people heard that and they opened up hospitals in the name of Jesus to care for people the way that this is. You know, so we hear things like the Good Samaritan Hospital. Or, you know, they, um, uh, they probably opened up a ministry that would minister to those who were traveling, who were stuck in, in, in a difficult situation. Or they opened up an orphanage or whatever because they heard this story. And so it's a very impactful story, I would say, on history. But, and this is kind of where I want to twist things here a little bit. If we're not careful, I think we can fail to apply Jesus' command to love our neighbors ourselves in the simplest of forms. Yeah, we can love a stranger who's in need in some, you know, kind of send money kind of way. We can kind of help them out that way. But what about non-strangers who maybe aren't in trouble or aren't in such obvious need as much as the hurt man is the samaritan's neighbor have you noticed that we have neighbors that actually are the people that we come in contact with all the time that are right around us 
See, I want to make the application in the very simplest of terms this morning. And I want to be very serious about this because, in fact, I believe that in this application that it, is, it contains the whole mission of the church. And if you, in 2015, decide to just jump on board with this idea and join God in ministry, you can join this church in ministry too. Who is my neighbor, asks the expert of the law. And I just want to kind of turn that question around to you this morning. Who is your neighbor? Now, if I asked this down the children's center, they would say, everybody, because that's the right answer, you know, to the story. We've always heard it. Well, everybody's my neighbor. Everybody's somebody I can love. The problem sometimes with us answering everybody is we end up not really feeling like we have to show anybody our love. Because it's like, well, I kind of love everybody. But what about specifically? What about literally? Who is your neighbor? Now, I don't have time to do this. But if I did, I would ask you to pull out a piece of paper. And I'd say for you to draw like a little map of your neighborhood or where you live. And in the eight nearest residences, could you tell me the names of the people that live in those houses and homes? Now, some of you could. Some of you have been living in your homes for a very long time. And it's like, oh, yeah, I know them. And I can tell you all about them, you know. But I would say in our society, that's not the story today. Most of the time, we don't really know the names of the people. Now, we say, oh, that's Mr. So-and-so. You know, he works at whatchamacallit and has that truck, you know. That's kind of what we know about our neighbor. But if Jesus commands us to love our neighbor, do we have a good excuse for not even knowing their names? Do we have a good excuse for not even knowing their names? In the art of neighboring, the authors say that in churches where they speak on neighboring, only about 10% of the people that they survey can supply the names of the people in the eight homes that are nearest to theirs or eight nearest apartments or whatever it might be. And although there are several of you that probably know their names, what could you tell me about the people that live in there? Now, I know you could tell me some things, like, he must not even own a lawnmower. I'll tell you about that about him, you know. And some of you, like me, are kind of like, that guy's got too much time on his hands. Look at his yard. It looks great, you know. It's, so it's, we know those kinds of things. But what about those biographical things that you only know if you're engaged in conversation with them? How many, how many of you could tell me those things about the people that live closest to you? This, in the Art of the Neighboring, it says only about 3%. This is inside churches for the most part. That they survey, survey know, the people there know not just the names, but even details about the people that live around them. And when we go even deeper than that, when we talk about like career plans or hopes and dreams, less than 1% can supply that information about the people nearest to them. And that may be acceptable because you're like, we just moved there last week. You know, we, we haven't had time. But let me ask you this. Do you really have a good excuse? I mean, if God has called us to love our neighbor, do we have a good excuse for not even knowing our physical neighbors, especially if the real solutions within our community lie in those relationships of good neighboring. Do we have a good excuse for not having a relationship with those people around us? One of the most convicting things in this book for me was that uh, one of the assistant managers that they, uh, they kind of interviewed said, from the city's perspective, there isn't a noticeable difference between in how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in our community. That's a pretty big indictment on the church. Whenever Jesus says they will know you not by the Jesus fish on your car or not by the scripture that's on that little plaque outside of your home, they will know you by your love, loving your neighbor. But they can't even tell the difference, not just in that town. That's happened all across towns all over our country. In other words, the church may know the great commandment and the second one that's like it, but they're not doing that whole love your neighbor thing. I'm sure this week you've at least thought about New Year's resolutions. You might have already abandoned them. I'm not sure. But if they've crossed your mind this week, let me kind of 
make a good suggestion for you. In 2015, would you consider making a resolution, setting a goal, whatever your terminology is, of, you know what, I am going to be a good neighbor in 2015. I'm going to be committed to be better at loving my neighbor as myself in 2015. Well, I would say if you properly want to love your neighbor, first of all, you've got to know their names. You've got to know who they are. And you've got to know what's going on in their lives. And so in the coming weeks, this is really what I, I, I want to tell you, is that in the coming weeks, I'm going to be kind of issuing some challenges in our church and through our Sunday school of saying, I want you to be a good neighbor. Would you be a good neighbor in 2015? And I challenged our ministry staff a couple months ago um, uh, uh, kind of brainstorm some ideas of how can we as a church be better in our community at loving the people around us and kind of being obvious that we're here and that we care for them, there's a place for them. And we talked about all the changes that you're seeing around our church. You know, of course, our property's expanding, but not only that, you know, the fact that we've got literal physical neighbors now, 800 college students that live across the street. I went over and toured the Agfirst, the old Agfirst that they're uh, transforming into some uh, condos. I did that just a couple months ago, and there's going to be physical neighbors just right over there. It's been a very long time since homes were next to First Baptist Church. And the largest land deal in modern history in downtown Columbia area is happening about 10, 15 blocks from here at the old state hospital where people are moving in. And you know what we said? We said there's no excuse for us as a church to not make sure that the people that are moving into downtown don't know who we are, where we are, we care for them, we love them, we're praying for them. And so we're coming up with ways that we can do that. We're coming up with ways to make sure that people that work right around us know who our church is, not just know the buildings or that you can't park there or whatever it might be. But they know that we're here, we love them, we pray for them, and we've got a place for them. But you know what? We can do those things, but what about you? I would say if we're really going to make an impact in our community, it's going to start with you. As you really take hold of God's mission to love God this year, but to love your neighbor and even your physical neighbors. Well, how do you do that? Well, I think, first of all, you pray for them. Um, now, we all have this uh, problem sometimes where we just say, Lord, I don't know their name. I pray for them. You know their name. You made them. You know their name. I don't know their name, but I just pray that you'll know who I'm talking about, you know? And we can do that. We can do it effectively. My dad's here. He used to do that when I was growing up. He'd say, God, I pray for my nieces and nephews. I don't know their names. You do, you know? And so uh, I pick on my mom a lot, but my dad, sorry, I had to do that once. Anyways, so, you know, you, we pray for these people, but you know what? We're much more effective at praying for people and much more committed when we know their names. So if you don't know their names, by the end of January, you should know their names so that you can be praying. If you do, then you write their names down, you put it on your refrigerator, and you start praying for them. And then what else do you do? I think you find ways to spend time with them. Now, I know you're like, if you knew my schedule, you'd know I don't have time. Well, I was always told that love is spelled T-I-M-E. So if Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, you better start spending time with them. The enemy is the garage door, right? goes up, enter my fortress, shut the gates, nobody in, nobody out, you know? But we've got to start finding time to spend with our neighbors if we're going to love them. I think we've got to find ways to serve them because that's how you really love. Loving your neighbor is you seeing them with your skin on them and saying, what would I want if I were in their situation or if I was where they were? And then you find ways to make sure that happens. So if you're saying, you know, maybe you're spending time praying saying, God, I just pray that you would continue to give me the consolation and the compassion that you show me because I'm suffering. Or maybe you've been there before. And you know what? If that's what you pray for and ask for, maybe you need to start seeing your neighbor and saying, if they're looking for compassion and they're looking for consolation, I can be the arm that goes around them and love them and shows them the support. Or if you're saying, you know, God, after you come off a vacation, I just pray that you would give me more time, that I could just spend leisurely time with my family. This is those of you 
who do not have four children, six and under. Y'all are saying that right now. The rest of us are like, Lord, can I go back to work? But if, um, if you enjoy your leisurely time, are there ways, are there ways that you can provide opportunities for them to have healthy times, leisure, you know, times that you can love them and serve them in that way. Well, that's how you love yourself or love your neighbor um, in a way of serving is by your giving them what you might be asking for. Now, what's the greatest thing that you can offer them? A relationship with God and a church family where they can be loved and belong. That's what you can provide. So we're setting goals here at First Baptist Church. Wouldn't it be wonderful if more people in 2015 came to First Baptist Church because they were invited, not because they just heard about us or they saw us on TV, but because you knocked on the door and you invited them, or you saw them out with me and you invited them. I don't have a way to measure this. I'd love to come up with a way that we could say that between now and Easter, we're going to invite a thousand people to First Baptist Church in some way. Wouldn't that be great? And the reason you say, who am I going to invite, is because you don't know your neighbor's name. If you knew their name, you'd be like, I know I'm inviting. And I want us to, you know, wouldn't it be great if in 2015 we just have to start opening new Sunday school classrooms because we have so many people. That's what I would like to see happen. But I'm going to conclude because I'm running out of time. In John 10, Jesus says an interesting thing about his neighbors. I mean, John 14. John 14, I'm coming from Luke 10, verse 2. says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you I am going away to prepare a place for you. We throw up our hands whenever people move in and say, There goes the neighborhood. Jesus starts preparing a place so you can be his neighbor. If you want to know what it looks like to love your neighbor, follow Jesus' example. He went to the cross so that you could be his neighbor. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much that we have this word, we have your, uh, uh, this, uh, these commandments for us to treasure and to read and to study, but God, I pray you help us to apply them. God, help us to be people that love you passionately but love our neighbors ourselves. God, and I pray that you'll use this time in our own lives as we just kind of make new decisions about this year and how we're going to love you and how we're going to serve you and how we're going to make an impact in our community. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to offer an invitation. And the truth is, some of you need to respond to it in very physical ways. You need to walk forward today. Because you say, you know what? Because the beginning, the first invitation is to respond to Jesus by being in relationship with him. If you've never done that, the invitation is open today. There will be people who would love to share with you I can do that. Maybe you need to join a church. Well, we're a great church. We'd love to have you. You come join the church. Or maybe you just need to kind of recommit or pray in a way. So, um, then you do that during this time. So I'm going to ask all of you to stand. Our choir is going to lead us in singing. And as they do, you just respond.